0: All right, everybody. I'm sure you guys have learned nothing new this weekend and know uh, your brain's not full at all, but this happens to be my personal favorite part. This is a chance where we get a chance, take anything we've heard or everything we've been thinking about and get a chance to ask men who have uh, spent a lot of time devoting their uh, um, devoting their focus to studying the Bible. So this will be a great interaction. I have some questions. I'm making up some questions. I'm taking bribes from the speakers (laughs) all right Uh, our first question and I have about eight questions Um, if you guys want to elaborate as we go pick up your microphone if this spurs another question you guys want to do it I'll be looking out for you we'll stop we'll make this interactive This this is a fun time all right James you're up first my friend yay All right, should I be afraid of God's permissive will? And would you please elaborate? Did you guys hear that okay? Should I be afraid
1: of God's permissive will? Please elaborate. Yep, um, glad this question got asked. I want to clarify and make just two quick points, and then I'll answer the question. So God has a perfect will. When we talk about God's permissive will, I want to make sure I make the point that that doesn't mean that there's an imperfect will of God. But, going back to the chart, when we're not in agreement with him, not choosing what his perfect best will is for us, thing that would be in our best interest, we're in the permissive will. And so there's the known part of that where we have a command that tells us what to do and what not to do. And clearly, I don't want to be in that permissive will. Then there's the unknown will of God, the freedoms and liberties where we get to choose. And when I make a choice that's not in absolute alignment with what God determines to be best, I'll have consequence when I don't choose his will. And so the problem. That you have to figure out is analyzing what your motives are because just like Job's friends right if we're thinking that every hardship or every trial is discipline then we might not be in the right place we won't be in the right place but just like Chris talked about today you should You should fear God. So you should definitely fear not being in his best interest, in what he determines to be your best interest, if he's all-knowing. So the answer is absolutely you should fear that. That being said, it is part of our sanctification that he does that. So I would just direct you to Hebrews 12, discipline, is good. It's for us, and it grows us. So I would, I would uh, just tell you that why fear being in the.
0: Ding. <laughs> I should have given you a heads up on that one. Sorry about that, bud. Try again. It should, it should be working.
1: Uh, no, I was just gonna cap it off and say uh, it's grace that God will discipline us and put us through trials. It's part of sanctification. But I want to please Him according to Colossians one, starting at verse nine. So I definitely don't, I don't want to go there. So I fear go. I should fear going there.
0: Hello. Any follow up questions that? Okay. Yes, Trevor. Oh. Nice and luck. How can we know decide on like the difference between God's perfect will and a permissive will
2: when
1: there's not a clear command? You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh Trevor said How do we know the difference between God's perfect will and God's permissive will when there's not a clear command? So that unknown area. And uh, I guess I would say you know it when you see it sort of thing, right? And so you got to analyze whether it's a trial or it's discipline. And only you'll be able to figure that out by testing your heart, right? And so you want to make sure and be diligent to not confuse a trial with discipline, and again, you'll have to analyze that. And that's why the process, as I said, is important. Why am I choosing to do this? And if it's for feeding my own desires and my own heart and not running it through an eternal filter, watch out.
0: Okay. Scott, is all competition bad? Oh, sorry. Don't oh, forgive me. You'll get a heads up on that one.
3: Gentlemen, without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? Hebrews eleven six. You can't remove faith from the equation of is this the permissive or perfect will of God? Take the commandments aside. The commandments tell you what his perfect will is. So obedience to the commandments is set in stone and you know whether you obey the commandment or whether you haven't. But when you're talking about things like which job should I take, which woman should I marry, you are now in an arena in which there is nothing written in stone, at least there wasn't for me in any of those things, and absent a vision from God or some direct calling from God, you have to make those kinds of decisions by faith. You can't remove it. And not only that, after you make the decision, based on whether it turns out in what you believe to be a favorable way or an unfavorable way, even that doesn't tell you whether it was the perfect will of God or his permissive will. You can't, you, you're, you're, you're trapped in that dilemma because it is by faith. and You just can't remove that. Now, if you, on the other hand, hear you're, you're contemplating a job and you believe God has said to you, Don't take that job, and that's what you believe, but you take it anyway. You can be very sure you've entered the permissive will of God because you've become willful with him, and now you've crossed that line. So willfulness then becomes an issue, but can't get faith out of the equation.
0: So, the desire has to be for his perfect will in every decision.
3: Exactly. Uh,
4: S- number 11. I, I just wanted to ask a clarifying. So, to me, if, if I sense that God doesn't want me to take a job, and I take it, am I not doing what I'm told not to do, which is anything that is not from faith is sin, my making a gray area, black and white.
3: No, Lee, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which is right, sin sin or not? He's, that's a sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So where does the
4: conscience play a role?
3: Well, the conscience, to violate your conscience is also a sin. And that's, generally, that's independent of whether your conscience is right or wrong. So, for example, if my conscience says uh, I, I should not eat meat, I know from the Bible that I, that I have permission to eat meat, right? There's nothing in the Bible that prohibits me from doing that. But if my conscience says don't do it, and I do it, I violated my conscience, and that is a sin.
5: Trevor, would you close the back door? It's, hard, it's shining and it's hard to see the guys' faces.
3: Guys, there's, hurt, there's a number of hurdles you have to get over when you're, when, when you're trying to make these kinds of decisions. Number one, is it immoral? Number two, is it illegal? Number three, is it harmful? Number four, does it violate my conscience? And number five, does it violate the golden rule? You've got to jump all of those hurdles when you're making these kinds of decisions.
0: Thank you Scott, all competition is it all is competition is all competition bad
6: yeah my my purpose wasn't to bad mouth competition. Um, I think the Bible doesn't prohibit competition, right so we're free to do whatever the Bible doesn't forbid. I think there are some really godly men that have come to a personal conviction that they're not going to engage in competition Um, and I I think that's a reasonable thing to do. I think my point was just to illustrate that competition is dangerous and it's not to say that you can't do it. I I personally do it and maybe to my own hurt but um, it's really hard not to covet winning and um, You can kind of gauge that by um, feeling discontent and comparing yourself to the people that you're competing against. And so those are just warning signs to be on the lookout for um, as you're doing it. But I I think it can serve a valuable purpose just because I think Jesus calls us to live a life of sacrifice. Um, Sacrifice is laying down something that you value for something that you perceive to be of greater value. And, um, I value winning, and I think Jesus calls me to, to lay that down. So no, I don't think competition is, is necessarily bad by definition, I just think it's dangerous and I just think we have to be alert and aware of that danger.
2: Isn't it a matter of context? Like everything else God gives us, we can abuse it.
6: We misuse it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we're more than capable of screwing up a lot of things. And um, I, I know for me, it's a real temptation to screw this one up. So, yeah, I would agree with that. So, I
0: shouldn't try harder on game point? <laughs>
6: <laughs> to try a lot harder, Kevin. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: Uh, this next question is for Chris. Chris, you gave us a lot of good references for eternal rewards, and we know that there's a great booklet back there for additional information on eternal rewards. Uh, this is more of a question of focus. How much of my daily focus should be about gaining et- eternal rewards, and and what is the basis of getting those rewards?
2: <clears throat> I'd be hard-pressed to, to see um, a problem with any part of my day not being uh, focused on eternal rewards. Um, they're good. They are a motivation that our God wants us to use. They help me stay focused on the eternal rather than getting wrapped up in the temporal. Um, I uh, invest in men A man invests in men and gives his life to others and sacrifices because he loves God and uh, because he first loved us, because he fears him and he wants to obey him, and because he's motivated for uh, eternal profit. And that's uh, self-interest, not selfishness. So we harness all three of those motivations to help us run the race that's been set before Mm us. Um, But I don't know that there's... A man who's focused too much on eternal rewards because he's just focused then on pursuing what it is, the good works that uh, God has set before him to do. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure if I answered all the questions in there. The basis of those rewards? The basis of those rewards. I'm not sure I know what that means, uh, but I know what I don't know, which is I don't know what those eternal rewards are going to look like. I just know that the scriptures and Jesus tells me that I will not be disappointed and I trust, and it's a, uh, it's a measure of faith uh, that we believe him as such. So, um, yeah.
5: I think the the basis for uh, rewards is faithfulness to opportunity. So as God takes us through whatever stream of life it is, we're going to have opportunities to trust him, to be faithful, not only to the commandments, but the situations and circumstances he brings <coughs> Excuse me, into our lives. And uh, he asks us to trust him. That's all he wants us to do, is just trust him. And as we trust him, he makes it well worth our while in eternity.
3: I just want to add to what, what Winston said. You know life is is not fair, right? Some guys hold hands of aces and kings. some guys have deuces and trays right that's not your choice you didn't make you didn't ask for the hand you got. you got the hand because it was dealt to you by God. so his expectation is that you play the hand and because God judges on a handicap system, the guy with the deuces and trays has at least as good a chance of being great in the kingdom as the guy with the aces and the kings. And you see that in, in the, the Hebrews uh, Hall of Fame. You see Rahab the harlot there. She had nothing but deuces and trays. She played the right card and God says that's a bingo man. That works. So play your hand, and to to Scott's talk, don't compare yourself with other people. Just play your hand.
7: For Chris, hi Chris. Um, On the arena of judgment, I've just been wondering lately, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So my judgment is going to be based on whether I was operating by faith. How much does accuracy play if I'm faithful to something that I believe that's wrong?
2: Um, I think a couple different things play into it. One of the parable talks about um, uh, the 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 slave or uh, the bond servant who knew the will of his master and didn't do it and the one who didn't know the will of the master and didn't do it. The one who knew um, was uh, understandably held to a a different standard uh, than the one who did not know. Uh, So I'll defer and refer to those guys down there, but I also think that, um, you know, accuracy is, uh, if I'm not concerned about accuracy, I think a man can be, uh, negligent, and, uh, and, and if he thinks it doesn't matter, um, and that's a problem in and of itself if I'm not gonna, if a man's not gonna be disciplined and, um diligent in trying to find the truth of the scriptures and what's expected of them but i do think there'd be a different standard of measurement based upon uh how right we get it because he you know he knows what's in here he knows the motive of our hearts um, and uh that that obviously is very important
3: Jack, I think you assume that you're wrong about a lot of stuff. You know, we're, 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 when you deal with the Bible, it's above our pay grade. So we get stuff wrong. That's just, but, but you have to deal with it. You can't, you can't be ignorant. And there's a difference between ignorance, simple ignorance, and willful ignorance. So a man can say to himself, you know what, I know about this accountability thing and the more I know, the more I'm accountable for, therefore I'm not going to know. That's being willfully ignorant and being willful with God is what will get you on his backside. So if you, if you take the Bible seriously and you come up with stuff that's just wrong and, but it's done with an honest heart, you're really trying to understand. I can't find anywhere in the scripture to suggest that God dings a man for being wrong if he does it with an honest heart. Man, is that encouraging?
5: I think that honest heart, you might say, is intent. And God uh, looks very clearly at our intent. And sometimes our uh, actions (laughs) don't always fulfill our intent, but the intent is, is very valuable to God. Table one. So would you say that the old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions is not a biblical statement?
3: Thank, thank you, Father. I think it depends on the sincerity of intention. There, one a, a guy, was I don't know if he was even a believer, but he taught me this a long time ago, that men figure out a way to do the things that are important to them. And I think that's a, that, um, I'm really glad to have learned that when I was younger. Because it helps you to sort through as you watch yourself and where you're putting in your strokes. Where are you spending your time? How are you spending your time thinking? What are you thinking about? What are you praying for? What are you asking God for? Am I asking Him for a laundry list of temporal things? There's nothing wrong with that. But am I going through the scripture looking for the things that please the heart of God and saying, Lord, I don't have those things. I want them. And then you keep at it. You keep asking. So I'd suggest to you that watching yourself will tell you what your real intent is.
1: Um. Just a little bit of a personal confession, I guess, along the lines of what Jerry just said. So three months ago, I got asked to come here and speak. And at the time, I'd also gotten involved in a Bible study, and I was putting together another study. And I went to my accountability group, and I just said, man, I don't know how I'm going to find all the time for this. And uh, one of my uh, partners said, well, you sure find a lot of time to do the things you want to do, though." And, uh, honestly, the blessing that the last three months have been where God's just shown me where to carve things out and, and toss them aside and to be seeking after him more fully and to be in the word and to, to avoid my pleasures, but to seek his. And I think that's. You know honestly where the the growth starts to begin is when you start to realize that in the positive commands i was talking with bryce about this this morning we'll never be able to check a box but you keep pushing for more and more he becomes more so i become less
0: well winston, winston this question's for you so With regards to power living, what role does alcohol play? With regards to power living, what role does alcohol play? The intent, a believer's relationship with alcohol, positive or negative with regards to power living.
5: Rubbing alcohol, or if you drink enough, drinking alcohol, or (laughs) (laughs) I've never had this one before. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure I understand the question, or where you're going with the question. alcohol is uh it's amoral it's what you do with it you know do not be drunk with wine so that's a ca- actually commandment not to get drunk but uh you got you're free to drink it so uh I suppose the amount you your drinks is going to affect your power of living, you yeah.
0: <laughs> know. So, five drinks, four drinks? Hey, hey Winston, since, since Kevin asked a question, he can elaborate on it. Yeah. Uh, a number would be great, but, you know. <laughs> That, that was an anonymous question, by the way. Yeah. All right, any any additional thoughts on alcohol at all? I
4: have, I have something here. Um, I agree with what's been said up front. Um, I like having an occasional beer or, or glass of wine. At least I used to. And, and I'm not trying to push anything on anybody, but I recommend you read up, do the research. Uh, there's a lot of lobbies out there to get you to want to drink. And at any rate, um, I just watched a really good website, I wish I knew the name of it, Secular, and he says there's nothing good about alcohol if you want to be healthy, if you want to maintain a decent lifestyle. I know it's a gray area, just wanted to throw it out there, do a little research. Uh,
3: I came from that world. I came from an alcoholic father, and uh, he was a loving father, hard working, hard partying. Uh, we never were, uh, uh, we always had what we needed, but there was one problem. He had a son that looked at his dad, and I started drinking when I was 14. By the time I was in the Marine Corps uh, and a musician, I was fully engulfed, uh, so as I, Look at my life now. I get to situations where I'll be at dinner, someone say, Do you want some wine? I know for myself
7: specifically, I can't touch it. I don't know when to say no. So um, I just think if you can't say, if you can't, if you can't know sp- specifically when to stop, don't even go there.
0: Amen. Thank you. You want to get Trevor, man?
8: We were uh, just kind of looking at each other, thinking about this, and one of the uh, greatest gifts I, I think that, uh, Jerry, you've given me is knowing the difference between commands, convictions, opinions, right? And we're kind of bouncing around and laughing a little bit, but let's read the beginning of Proverbs 31. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him, What, O my son? And what, O son of my womb, what, O son of my vows, do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Thank you, Gene. All right, right, man,
5: let's let's just bottom line it. The Bible does not does not prohibit drinking alcohol so you're free to drink it but I come my dad was an alcoholic I don't drink and I quit drinking a long time before I ever became a Christian because I knew it for me not for anyone else but for me I can't just have a couple of beers. I'll close the last place in, ta- in, the, in, the house, in the town at night. So I can't drink, and I don't drink. But it's not for religious reasons. It's just, I just I'm one of those guys that can't drink. But we've got to be careful now that we don't, don't make it a commandment. So every man's got to decide if he's going to drink or not drink. If he gets drunk, then he's got problem. God's got problems with him because there's a commandment not to get drunk. And I appreciate guys like myself that can't drink, but we got to be careful that we don't go to legalism and say we can't drink at all. And so and the other The other aspect of this, and and go to Romans 14, is we've got weaker brothers, and a weaker brother may have certain convictions that he really holds dear to him, or he may have a weakness, and let's say it's drinking, so we don't drink around him. We may not even talk about it. But also the weaker brother, and he's got he's got to be careful that he doesn't make that normity for everyone. I gotta be careful, because I'm one that can't drink, but I can't say to you, fellas, you better not be drinking. See that's legalism, and we can't go there. So back to the bottom line. The Bible does not prohibit drinking. But we all know that it has the capacity to be very destructive. But each man's got to decide what that looks like. But we got to be sensitive to each other. If it's a issue that what the Bible calls a weaker brother, we got we to honor that. And we run it through the filter of love.
0: Alright, thank you. Subject change to, uh, to Jerry. You said that the harlot Babylon in Revelation 17 represents the apostate church. For those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, shouldn't the church be no more mm-hmm.
3: at that time? I would suggest to you man. again, the, the problem that, that we're, you're, you encounter when you do prophecy is that you are taking images, Okay? There's a a picture painted in Revelation 17. The picture is of a harlot riding on a beast. Your challenge as an interpreter is, how do I go from an image? Because I don't think in images. I think in words. How do you go from an image to words and then from words to concepts. And gentlemen, that is if if the Holy Spirit does not do that, it is guaranteed you will come up with the wrong interpretation. Okay? That's why there's so many interpretations. I am not saying to you I am right about this. It's my best, my best guess. Give me that, that question one more time.
0: You said the harlot Babylon in Revelation 17 represents the apostate church. For those who believe in pre-tribulation rapture, shouldn't the church be gone?
3: The harlot, when if you read the rest of the chapter and you read chapter 18, she is a, a being, an entity, which transcends many, many centuries. And so it is the apostate, and I, I think I would probably loop into her apostate Israel, the apostate church and all idolatrous worship but the final manifestation of this idolatry, see the the human race is obsessed with idolatry after the Tower of Babel idolatry becomes part of the human race and we have been pursuing God on our terms ever since and the the manifestation of that is idolatry in different forms. I think the harlot represents those different uh, attempts at managing God through an idol. What I'm suggesting to you is this last manifestation is the Christian manifestation. Apostate Christianity seeks to manage God on its terms. So she's an entity that transcends time, but her last manifestation is as the church. And it doesn't matter where where the quote true church is because the true church was never part of her in the first place.
0: Thank you. All right. This question is um, for the entire panel. Um, each one give just a, a quick thought on what they um, what they how they would respond. Starting with Scott. What does it what does it mean to establish your purpose?
6: I'm sorry? To
0: establish your purpose. What does it mean to establish your purpose? What does it mean? What do you, each of you think it means to establish, for a person to establish their purpose?
6: Well, I think the Bible talks to us that um, that we were created a specific way by God, not on accident. Um, Jesus tells us that we're to be seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And so I think our goal is to kind of marry those two concepts and to say, okay, God, I want to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. I'm your workmanship. You made me a certain way. How do I match those two things up? And I I, I don't know if I'm answering that question, but I, I think that's, that's how a person goes about doing that and so you you read through passages in scripture that talk about spiritual gifts and you think through those you pray through those Um, you, you you pray that God reveals you what that will look like you try to get involved in the lives of people and see what the body of Christ asks you to do. You ask for advice from, um, from godly men that you trust, and uh, see where God leads you, see what doors he opens, and see what doors he closes. And I, that's, I think that's your best shot at it.
3: Man, it seems to me that life pivots on two questions. The two questions are, number one, is there a God? And the second question is, if he exists, does he have expectations of us? If you answer both of those questions in the, in the affirmative, then the only rational thing to do with respect to purpose is to find out what he wants and give it to him. And to make that, that that's your purpose. And gentlemen, let me just, just make a, a distinction for you. The pursuit of heaven and the pursuit of God are not the same thing. Everybody wants to go to heaven, believer and unbeliever alike. They may not call it heaven, they might call it paradise, or if they're secularists they'll call it utopia, but every single one of us wants to live forever with unbroken bliss. Right? That is natural to us. So it is natural to seek heaven. It is not natural to seek God for sinful men. That is an acquired taste. And so in your purpose, make sure you understand that it is God himself whom you pursue. Chris talked about rewards. The reward is is heaven, but the reward is primarily God. He's who you're seeking. He'll take care of heaven for you. You seek him.
5: I don't know if I'm going to add anything to what Scott and...
0: and Jerry. Jerry. (laughs) Jerry. Jerry Jerry. Jerry Banger. (coughs) And
5: what's his name, said. (laughs) I think it's the... I think our purpose is for, and I'll just put it in my own words, it's, it's not saying anything new, is to know God and uh, try to please Him.
1: We're made for His good pleasure and. And I, and I think the question, and I don't want to presume who asked it or why, but we've talked, I think, so far about universal purpose. I think the question maybe that somebody was getting at is, what's your unique purpose? And you have this idea of kingdom-seeking and evangelism and edification, and you have to determine how you're going to live that out. How are you going to do it? And I'll just say that the best I know is from the Second Timothy two, 2 verse, from the guys that have modeled it for me who've been modeled it themselves. So find it out, figure it out, and then just do it.
2: Yeah, I certainly don't have anything to add, but, um, you know, purpose is at the top, and it would dictate in a man's life, just like it would dictate in an organization, everything that flows underneath it. What do I give my time to? Um, How do I make decisions? What's important to me? Uh, You know, our purpose should be, and he talked about unique purpose, but our universal purpose as men is to give our lives for the eternal. And that's the word of God, getting to know God, and, and men. Those are the only two things that are eternal. Uniquely, God has uniquely equipped each one of us and that's what we're going to find out, how does that look like? What's that supposed to look like for me individually? And it is important because, you know, purpose is like the rudder of a ship. It's underneath the water. I don't see it when I look at, look at a man or a ship. But just the way that that thing's directed is going to change the directory of a man's life, change the directory of a man's ship, uh, you know, by hundreds of miles. So we do want to make sure that we do the work of finding out exactly what it is that, you know, God wants of us, how he's made us. And uniquely how he wants us to, um, you know, give our lives for the eternal and be prepared for an eternity with him.
0: All right, I've got a couple doctrinal questions. Please.
7: Yes, yeah, so uh, Keith and I went through the Purpose book and I think like three months. It's not an easy book. Um, what was really interesting is that the discovery for me who's just a toddler in this walk of faith is that I have to trust that God will show me my unique purpose but what was missing and what has been added here this weekend is that God reveals things to you when you first seek him I was waiting for him to give it to me first Amen Amen
0: okay um i'll leave this open to microphone wars but uh what what role does the virgin birth have for jesus's qualification as the perfect sacrifice what role does the virgin birth play in jesus being qualified as the perfect sacrifice
3: Know
5: my name. All men are born into sin in order to satisfy God's justice because all sins against God, and any time that we violate his righteousness, it requ- he demands justice. Justice, satisfica- satisfaction of justice is punishment. And so, none of us, none of us are qualified to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And all of us are born of Adam. And therefore, Jesus had to be born as a, through a virgin birth. He wasn't not born of Adam, but he was born of God. Therefore, he qualified as a perfect sacrifice in his propitious death on the cross, to pay the price or to satisfy God's justice for all of our sins. Thus, the virgin birth was
0: necessary. Due to time, I'm just going to keep rolling.
3: Can I just add to that? Um, In Romans 5, Paul points out that God imputes the sin of Adam to every human being. And you ask yourself, well, what's the point of that? I've sinned more than sufficiently to get myself into hell. Why would God pile on and give me Adam's sin? And the answer to that is, it is it is the grace of God that he does that. Because sin is imputed through the man. Through Adam and through each guy in this room, your children and my children are born with the imputed sin of Adam because of me, not because of my wife, because of me. So fathers transmit the sin of Adam. Jesus, therefore, could not have a human father, and his father, according to Matthew, is the Holy Spirit. So... That's how he could not, that's why he did not have the imputed sin of Adam, because he didn't have a human father.
0: As a New Testament, or as a believer, what role does the Old Testament law play in my life?
3: None. Gentlemen, you can learn from the Old Testament. You may take things in there and say, I'm going to make this a personal conviction of mine. I'm going to act on this. And you are free to do that. That's between you and God, how you handle that. But Paul hammers this point. Read the book of Galatians, men. He hammers this point. You are not under the law. Chris was talking about all the things that men try to wed to Jesus. Paul talks in Galatians about men trying to wed the Jewish law to Jesus. And Paul says, if you do that, go to hell. He is so strong in this. You cannot wed the Jewish law to Jesus Christ. Again, go to the Old Testament and use it any way you wish. But the law, the Jewish law, is not normative for any of us in Christ. You want to keep the Sabbath? You want to keep some of the Jewish holidays? That's great. but That's between you and God. But don't think it has any efficacious or sanctifying capacity any more than observing the 4th of July.
5: Having, uh, this is not in any way, this is, Not in any. This is just an application, Uh, and doesn't doesn't um, take anything away from what Jerry just said because he's absolutely right. But if one of our purposes is to know God, there is a value in reading just reading through the Old Testament. Because it covers a longer period of time, and you get to see men, a lot of through Israel, and the interaction between Israel or the interaction between certain men and God, and how God responds. And so you get to you get to see. Uh, what God is like, just reading through that in a way that you may not get it through the New Testament because it's, it's, it's confined more, it's, the time frame is not there. So there's, I have found a certain value of just seeing what God's like and what, what he does like, what he doesn't like. Boy, you see the wrath of God clearly if you go through the Old Testament, which helps us develop that in our concept of who he is. So, uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't any, Jerry's right on with what he says.
1: I, um, quick little allegory. So, my uh, friend had never seen the movie Shawshank Redemption and I made a reference And I realized he looked so confused it went right over his head and So you're if you're gonna study the New Testament There are tons of references and you're not and they're gonna fly right over your head So in, a, in addition to what Jerry said, I'm just adding into what Winston's saying that you can't fully appreciate <laughs> Who Jesus is what he did how he was a high priest I mean the list goes on and on until you know what it said and also the character of God and what he despises and how he deals with it and what the consequences are in the law and that I have no idea in my finite mind what his infinite mind uh, has in store all
0: right this is A little bit of a different topic here, but for those who are interacting with people dealing with tragedy, like the loss of a young child, are there any biblical assurances that we have as we're trying to encourage through those tough circumstances, either Christian or non-Christian?
3: In um, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul goes through a series of scenarios, married, unmarried, and so on. And one of the scenarios he addresses is a couple is married, and one of them comes to Christ and the other one doesn't. And so he addresses that what does the what does the christian partner do in that situation and his advice is his counsel is do not divorce your unbelieving partner but if they if they leave that's okay let them let them go you're going to be free to remarry but the other thing that he addresses in that is children because that's an obvious concern right of this I'm married to an unbeliever what's how's this going to affect my kids? and Paul assures them that God will use that unbelieving partner as a saint to sanctify their kids in other words, he won't let the unbelieving partner affect that kid's eternal destiny and I think men the churches historically and I think they're right in this come to the conclusion that when Paul says your children are sanctified that if say say for example you have you know, a three or four year old child who dies and you are, the un- you are a believing spouse, but you have an unbelieving uh, spouse. I think what he is saying to that believing spouse is, you'll see your child in eternity based on your faith.
4: I think King David had a baby that died
8: and said he would see him in heaven. Exactly. (laughs) All right, just a couple
0: more questions here. Um, Yes, please. uh, Just a
5: couple of observations beyond just losing a child, just any tragedy uh, like that. Sometimes we don't have, we don't have anything to say to him. There's not, and uh, I think one of the things I just say, you know, I don't know, but I, what I do know is God is a loving God. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. And I just, in those kind of cases, I just have to leave it there. But in addition to that, I would say sometimes when people are grieving no words may be the answer. I remember a friend of mine lost his, a young child. He was at the He was at the hospital and the child had just died. And he was in the room grieving. And he said a friend of his came in, never said a word. Just sat there and cried with him for an hour and got up and left. Sometimes there just aren't words, fellas.
7: Yeah, Keith just shared this thing with me. It's called the house of mourning. So in Ecclesiastes 7.2 it says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart. And it goes on to say that if you want an accurate estimation of life, you must face it at its worst. When you face life like it is, you prepare, your, you prepare yourself for difficulty. For when you realize, Or you realize when it comes, you are not alone. For this reason, you have an opportunity to learn more going into a funeral than to a wedding. To the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Probably not an easy thing to share with someone who's just experienced a tragedy, but those are really good words.
0: i right, not going to be able to get to all the questions, so there's a couple left unanswered. I apologize for that, but I have one more question I'd like Trevor to answer, please. If you can grab a mic. The question is um, Can someone give a history of this group of men? When it started, do we know if we're close to 250,000, and uh, how widespread is this ministry?
2: Um, lots of guys around the country. I think, uh, you know, there's this, there was a retreat that started in Colorado Springs in the late 70s, and it's kind of mushroomed as guys have moved around the country and started other ones, and there's probably a half dozen that go around the country. Have no idea about the 250,000. All I know, guys, is we're praying for it. We'll trust God for the results, and we'll just continue uh, ministering to one man at a time. That's what, that's what it's about. So um, you cannot uh, create, count, and control the ministry. We love doing that in business, but when it comes to ministry, it's not possible. So let's just walk
0: faithfully and trust the Lord for the results. Okay, guys, Um, I have a couple announcements this,